feel as if God's walking around that island along with me. And many the time, you know, I have actually, you know, found him right beside me. And when I mean that when I say it. I'm not a person that's, you know, I don't fantasize, you know, I'm just a normally normal person. But this here is the best thing that anybody can come there for to pray. They're alone with Jesus in that island, the way he took his apostles years ago to the island. And that's the secret of that island, is how you come, you know, spiritually. I can remember when I was young, my mother going to Loch Derg. Or rather, what I remember was not her going to Loch Derg, but her coming home from Loch Derg. I can remember uh, being out in the hay fields uh, on a, probably a July or August day, it had to be, and uh, my mother had walked from the nearest town uh, and she was coming home from Loch Derg. She, she had to work very hard because we lived on a farm and we had animals and we had all kinds of cows and pigs. And she was involved in all the farming activity. And I can remember her saying that it was like a rest to get to Loch Derg. I think that the shape of the pilgrimage is inherently mythical. Uh, within each individual pilgrim, there is a sense of setting out, of crossing water, which is very, I think it's very important, very deep, uh, uh, almost uh, biological sense of change occurs in people. Setting foot in another place, going through a test, uh, because there is a sense of measuring yourself against testing conditions. Then the, uh, the sense of having achieved something, of having achieved uh, a radiance, having achieved a, a, a payoff, a boon, whatever, and then the reward of crossing back, renewed to the other place, psychologically, mythologically, as well as religiously, uh, there is fundamental attraction in the Loch Derrick pilgrimage. The proper name for this place is St. Patrick's Purgatory. Most people refer to it as Loch Derg. Uh, that's the name of the lake, but the island here in the lake, uh, which is called very often Station Island uh, or St. Patrick's Purgatory, this is the centre of the pilgrimage. Pilgrims came and spent some time in the cave. They went down into the cave uh, only with permission from the the local bishop and so on, because it was a very difficult and rigorous pilgrimage and pilgrims came from far away, they came from Europe, they came uh, not in big numbers I suppose because it was so difficult and there was so much, uh, they the, had to get permission all this kind of thing. So uh, they came, they spent time here and probably tried to live a bit like the monks of old uh, to spend some time, maybe it was a month or two, maybe a year or so here on Station Island. Then, not far away on Saints Island was a monastery, 
and the monks lived there, pilgrims came, walked across a bridge onto St. Silent, spent time in the monastery, and then came over to the to the, to the station island, or the purgatory, as they would have called it. And uh, they talked about the, the pit or the cave. They went down into that and spent some time in that, came back up out of it, and then uh, maybe went off home again, or maybe just lived here a kind of monastic-type life, life for a while. Looking at it anyway from the point of view of Europeans, this place was on the edge of the world. They, for, from, from Europe, uh, people came out towards the edge of the world. It was almost as far west as you could go. And the, the, in the back of their mind must have, must have been this thing of falling over the edge of the world. And here, coming to the edge of the western known world, they came to this strange, unique place called St. Patrick's Purgatory. Pilgrims get on the boat and immediately they have left they have left the mainland, they have left they almost left home and onto this island. Then they take off their shoes when they arrive on the island. And that is a significant gesture and a great bonding between people. When people are in their bare feet, they are they're down at their lowest in some sense and there's n there are no barriers anymore, and that's that's great. Having got into their bare feet, then they begin to make the station. This is a series of prayers and motions, a ritual that they go through, which uh, there are nine of them during the during the time of pilgrimage, and it brings them back to to, to through the centuries, through the generations, linking them with other people. Um, they walk around, they kneel, they stand. And in some way, the, the, the saying of the prayer, which is like a mantra, repeating it again and again and again, and walking around, sometimes in circles and standing and kneeling, all of this might on, on the one level not make any sense, but on another, on another level creates a certain inner peace. And this is, this is one of the things that, that the Loch Derrick pilgrimage offers to people, which is very good. did the pilgrimage I had absolutely no literary or anthropological or mythological <laughs> theories about it whatsoever. I was part of uh, a generation whose uh, social life <laughs> included uh, Catholic practices. I went on the bus from the Catholic chaplaincy in Belfast. I was a student at Queen's University and there were bus loads went at the, uh, in the month of June every year. It was medieval in the sense that it combined the social and the pious. 
and uh, was singularly um, lacking in in a kind of uh, any kind of reverence or hush. The great thing I remember about the Loch Derek pilgrimage, both going to it, coming from it, and being on the island, was a sense of the social and was a sense of robust, robust, uh, unsanctimonious uh, activity going on all the time, and. Uh, there was a certain amount of flirtation, of course. I mean, I think that the... I'm not saying that there was uh, uh, sexual adventuring, not at all, but that there, uh, a part of the energy, certainly for uh, people in their uh, 20s, their teens and 20s, uh, was the, the merriment of, of um, company-keeping. <laughs> company-keeping that was uh, uh, entirely ratified by the guardians because because it was clearly um, all being done in, in, in a kind of pious, uh, healthy, moral context. But there was a cheerfulness and a merriment and a flirtatiousness uh, in, in the air also at Loch Derg, as well as that um, submerged uh, penitential thing. I think the spiritual meaning of the pilgrimage varies from pilgrim to pilgrim. Uh, there is nothing more complicated and uh, disguised, I suppose, than the spirituality of teenagers um, of my generation and maybe of any generation, so that many things can coexist. Um, there can uh, coexist um, a, a deeply secluded but entirely authentic, uh, uh, idealistic streak, uh, sacramental streak, uh, a search for the, the salvation of the soul. Can cat can be going on. Uh, at the very marrow of a person's uh, being, and at the same time, out on the outside, you can have this joke-telling, um, uh, uh, storytelling, entirely um, nonchalant social creature. So I think it's very difficult to measure the reality of uh, what's happening there. Uh, this is what the, I think, spiritual teachers, the abbot and uh, priests and on the island would have a sense of the inner voltage of spiritual life, obviously through confessions, obviously through observation, and just through the the different intimacies that are, would be offered to clergymen by the pilgrims, that they would have a sense of the um, spiritual meaning. But I think that people don't need to be spiritually um, uh, conscious, if you like, or spiritually self-aware for the pilgrimage to have a... Uh, uh, I can a truth for them. I don't like to rhyme off prayers. I very much like to talk. So like, you know, God, I'm having a tough time. Say, say, I'm having a tough time at work at the moment, you know, can you, if it's possible, like, can we make things work out? And if not... But I'll go with whatever you do, and then it always sort of will. But I'm thanking you for what you've given me so far and stuff like that. But I very much talk in my prayers. I would turn around now in my prayers and say, Well, thanks for, for what you've done me in the past. You know? And I'm, I am quite superstitious. Like, even when I play football matches and stuff now, I would still cross myself before I went and play a football match and, and say a prayer that uh, let's have a good game here today and stuff like that. I was playing more distillery here in the Irish League, and then I set my exams, A level and stuff. I went over at Easter. And they offered me a tra- uh, to come over then full full time, but I, I just went back over in the summer, stayed there for a year and a half, and then came back here, played with Arch, and then got injured. And at the moment, I'm with uh, 
Donegal Celtic. Like actually, tell you the truth, when I was coming for here, I was going to say, look, God, if it's possible, you know, get a few people to come watch me and see what happens. But if, it, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen, you know. But yeah, I liked that it. it was a good lifestyle. I probably wasted it myself, tell you the truth. I probably didn't apply myself as well as I, I should have done, you know. And I'm 23 now, so maybe it's my granny and stuff like that. Like she's very much, she's in the Clonard Novena and stuff like that. They're, sort of, they're all very much in the, you know, if you don't pray, you don't, you know. And even if you do pray, you don't expect to get what you ask for. God, she always says, you know, uh, he's, God knows what's best for you. you know, And he, he'll give you what's, what you need and not what you want. The pilgrim makes one station and is then free to eat, uh, to have a Loch type meal. The Loch meal consists of black tea or black coffee or just water and dry or toasted bread and oat cake and is very basic and very spartan and provides, I suppose, a minimum amount of nourishment. But I think, again, uh, brings, brings us back to the time of our ancestors because they wouldn't have had very much. They might have even had to bring their own bread with them and eat it dry or with water. And it, it's a link with that. Then the pilgrim makes other stations and at the end of that day, goes into what we call the vigil, keeping vigil, staying awake all night, not just all night, but all night and all the following day. And part of that is done in the Basilica. And the Basilica is, I think, architecturally, it's a reminder of the cave that was unlocked there. It's a large, round building. And when the vigil begins, the pilgrims are in there, and the doors are closed, and it is a reminder of having gone into the cave and spent time in that cave of long ago. And through the night, and just the sheer drudgery of going on and on and on, saying prayers, moving about, trying to keep awake, it brings people down. And then as the night wears on and coming towards morning and sunrise and the brightness again, they begin to, to rise somewhat, and through the day... And that's basically all that, that they have to do during that day, just keep on going. The Sacrament of Penance is celebrated on that morning, and many people would say that that has to be the worst time of all to celebrate penance, to go to confession. And yet uh, our experience would be that it is, yes, the worst time in one sense and the best time in another sense because all the pride is gone, everything like that is gone. It's down to basics and... I, I'm not going to cover up, I'm not going to apologize, I'm just going to be me before God, and that's good. Shine, hallelujah, shine, hallelujah, shine, hallelujah, shine, I had a doubt about why anyone should 
put themselves through this rigorous penance of fasting, of doing without sleep, of walking around in bare feet and getting cold. I just at one time couldn't make any sense out of that. And I can't say that I had a a big conversion or anything. Uh, I came back here and I began to look at it and try and make sense out of it and try and see that, that, to try and see some sense in this. And uh, eventually I came round to seeing that I didn't, one didn't come and do these things just for the sake of doing them. A pilgrim doesn't come to Loch Derg and uh, torture themselves. They come and they get involved in this thing, which is fasting and doing without shoes and doing without sleep. And it's towards something else. It's something, it's an inner kind of thing. And these are only outward, uh, maybe symbols of it. There's something about about stripping yourself, something about almost going to the edge in the sense of going to the edge of the world, going to the edge, going to the boundaries of my own experience, doing without, uh, to, see, to test myself almost, to see uh, how I'm going to react. There's something about that in it too. Island. Uh, I was with my husband. We weren't married at the time now. You know, we was just going with him. And then I kind of came on then. We came then every year. But when we get married then, we stopped, you know, for a couple of years because we had the children, you know. He played a wild part in my life. He was a terrible, humble kind of a man, you know, hard-working, very good Christian man. And he, he, he was really a factor in my life. Then I felt then that every part of our lives, God was with us, you know, from then on. And I know probably people would say, Ak, you know, you're not really the full, you know, shown, you know, the way people talk about you, like they say. But I know myself, even when my husband died, he's four years dead now. I mean, I could safely say the Holy Family were just there at the bed. I came out, I brought my family up during all the troubles, you know, in Chantala. Mm. I'm from Derry. Mm. And, uh, I had 12 children then, as I told you before, and the troubles were very bad. And you know, it wasn't exactly, it was what God kept away from my door. It's not what he, actually what you see that he does for you, it's what that he keeps away from your door that people don't see. I mean, I have never had any, I had uh, seven girls and five boys, while all around me the troubles were there and people were getting lifted and jailed. It never came to my door. because. We never missed the rosary every night. Our family said the rosary every night, and there was never any bother. I have never had any bother with troubles or any serious bothers, you know, with the youngsters, like. And I mean, that was hard to believe when all around you, everybody was getting under bother and under trouble. And my children were just like the rest, they were normal. They would have went out to discos out there, but there was never any real danger. You know, that they might be out doing something, maybe, you know, with the troubles, like, no. That was just Our Lady looked after them every night. And that's just the way I see it. It's whenever the dark times come that you really know, you know, that you're going to come out of it all right. You just, the way I feel about it now, like, I'm left now on my own. My family are all married. 
And I just know that it's a new thing every day because you never know what God's going to turn up from day to day. You know, it's excitement, you know, of what's going to happen. It's just the way I feel. And I'm quite happy, you know. I wrote this sequence of poems about Loch Derg called Station Island. Uh, I had a scraping of this way back uh, in just when I started to write sometime in the 60s. I always had this vision of a cold place where the protagonist would walk round and round in a circle and in some way uh, by going through that uh, not so much fire as cold, because Loch Derg isn't the, isn't the test by fire, it's the test by rain and repetition. Uh, but I just had had this image, and I tried to write it, but it never worked out. Then I thought of the, that it was a wonderful locus for re-entering your life by meeting people, because uh, it is, it is a, a vigorously social pilgrimage, and you do meet people. Are you also... Uh, by sitting up all night and going through that repetitive walkabout in the in the in the basilica, you become a little hazy and drowsy and dreamy, and something like uh, a hallucinatory mood sets in uh, in the small hours of the morning. And I thought the, the combination of the, uh, the meeting place and the hallucinatory would would allow for a kind of um, poem where various ghosts would appear. So. And also a poem which, which would be, to some extent, penitential, <laughs> which would put the protagonist or the pilgrim through a series of recollections and self-testings uh, and self-confessings. Uh, mind the bare feet. If you, if you come to do Loch Derg, that's one of the things you have to do, the bare feet, so you don't mind the bare feet. Everybody's the same, so you don't feel out of place or anything. It's just Loch Derg, just, and that's bare feet and black tea and toast. I have angina at the minute. Against all odds, I come, so it was great. I never bothered me, I never had any trouble able to do everything and it was really great I don't know why you come, I don't honestly know you just get a, a feeling, you just want to go to Loch Derg and that's it, you just go and that's it Well, that is the way we release it when we go off the island. After all, we suffered. And well, that is peace of soul for the grace we left to get in. We don't know that. 
Show your mind. It keeps trying. There's something about doing it three times, everybody says. It's 30 years ago since I did it. But I think, I mean, it's actually easier to do now because of the nice modern buildings and, you know, we eat coffee. We didn't have coffee years ago. We just had tea and you had terrible black bread. There's now you have nice hot toast. And um, the dormitories are much nicer too. It's, it's extremely miserable. I mean, really, it is now. We have to put in the whole day now, and it's raining. I want, I mean, we've, we'll be trying to leave our tea till about. Five o'clock, not to have it too early. You need nothing to eat you up. Just wandering around the island in the rain. I've, he- I've heard many, many moving stories. Um, they're not the kind of stories that one tends to repeat or to tell because they are people's stories, because, because there's something sacred about them. There's something about uh, a person having shared that story with me, trusted me to tell me that story, and I wouldn't like to, to tell that same story to anyone. I wouldn't tell that same story to anyone. Uh, I wouldn't even tell that story in a general kind of way, lest anyone might say that's my story, uh, I would I would have to keep that story. But but I would have heard many dramatic stories, many many moving stories over the years. Uh, you would hear a lot about about broken relationships of various kinds, uh, the whole web of relationships of of different kinds of relationships and break up in relationships. That would obviously be at the back of a lot of stories. Um, the story of, of, of abortion might be very traumatic for someone. Uh, maybe the most, the most hurtful story in some ways. Uh, the story of various forms of violence uh, might also be um, very dramatic and very hurtful for the person telling the story. And the kind of story that you you get very involved in and feel very much with the person and want not to in any way judge the person but just to help the person to to see what it is about that action that they want to move away from to leave it in other words to experience the forgiveness of God There have been times when I've heard stories that have, that have made me feel angry, that made me feel that I, uh, how can I, how can I, how can I listen to this story? How can I hear it and not get angry with the person who's telling me the story? How can I, 
how can I take this into my life in some way or other? And all the time I have to to take to listen to that story in the context that this person this person is telling me the story because they want to be rid of what it is. They want to experience God's love and mercy. And sometimes I would have found it hard. I would have found it very hard to I would have maybe found it very hard to forgive myself and yet I know that here I am offering God's forgiveness. I am saying that yes, what you have done is is, is not right. It, it, it might have been terrible but God still cares about you. God still loves you and therefore in in listening to your story I want to accept you as a human being with with your with your story. I want to accept that because that's what God wants to do for you. Sometimes that's very difficult. At times when when there's been when there's been a question of violence to people and maybe death involved, that is very difficult. I always remember personally the last morning of the pilgrimage as whether or not there was sunshine, the sun was shining in your head. The, there was that um, moment after confession, which <laughs> uh, was always a moment of, of liberation. And as on, on the th- morning of the third day, as I recollect it, you, you, you went to confession. Uh, if you didn't go to confession, you certainly went to to communion, it was kind of the Eucharist and so on, and there was that sense of uh, clarification, purification and uh, certain uh, well, radiance wouldn't be overstating it. Well, I set, I set that moment in, in, the, in the kitchen where the people are taking, sitting around taking the soup, and the character has a vision of, of a transfigured a, a transfigured ordinary thing, it's just a, a, an old mug uh, and the mug is in the poem, I think, because I associate it with the crockery and uh, folk furniture of, of, of the room. And he, he, sees, he sees the mug, and the mug is transformed in memory, and he remembers about his transformation. And it's associated with his own transformation and with the sense of renewal and radiance. Morning stir in the hostel. A pot hooked on forged links. Soot flakes. Plumping water. The open door brilliant with sunlight, hearth smoke rambling, and a thud of earthenware drumming me back until I saw the mug beyond my reach on its high shelf, the one patterned with blue cornflowers, sprig after sprig repeating round it, as quiet as a milestone. When had it not been there? There was one night when fit-up actors used it for a prop, and I sat in the dark hall estranged from it, as a couple vowed and called it their loving cup, and held it in our gaze until the curtain jerked shut with an ordinary noise. Lonely. You see, you say, I'll never see it again. And still you have in your heart and soul made up that you will, you will come, if you get what you pray for, you'll come back. 
I always feel lonely. I don't read the 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 two the rounds or any of those things. I don't read those at all. They're hard, not easy. But then, what is easy in life? Especially when you get what you pray for. I feel very satisfied. I've achieved something. What it is, I'm not quite sure, but I feel relieved and happy, content. Ready to face the big bad world again. I hope. <laughs> Nothing can adequately explain why one comes on the island. And similarly, Nothing can adequately explain why you leave it, how you feel when you leave it. It's, it's inner satisfaction, or something to do with inner satisfaction. Sense of achievement. As regards the, the Christian virtues, there, there are Christian virtues, but I'm not a holy person. Uh, I'm the biggest sinner going. You, know, but you need to get purged every so often. I think this purges me. Pilgrimage is a setting, and it's a framework. Uh, the subject, really, of the poem, I suppose, is the uh, protagonist's uh, f- search for his, his, his soul and the redemption and personal redemption. But the character that he meets when he comes off the island is the stern ghost of James Joyce, who says, togetherness isn't what it's about for you. Uh, you have to do it in a different way. You have to uh, go go solitary, go go it alone. Uh, so uh, at the end, uh, he has sort of warned off pilgrimages, this guy, having, having gone through it. Uh, the last section uh, goes like this. Like a convalescent, I took the hand stretched down from the jetty, sensed again an alien comfort as I stepped on ground to find the helping hand still gripping mine, fish-cold and bony. But whether to guide or to be guided, I could not be certain, for the tall man in step at my side seemed blind, though he walked straight as a rush upon his ash plant, his eyes fixed straight ahead. Then I knew him in the flesh out there on the tarmac among the cars, wintered hard and sharp as a blackthorn bush. His voice Eddying with the vowels of all rivers came back to me, though I did not speak yet, a voice like a prosecutor's or a singer's, cunning, narcotic, mimic, definite as a steel nib's downstroke, quick and clean. And suddenly he hit a litter basket with his stick, saying, Your obligation is not discharged by any common right. What you do, you must do on your own. The main thing is to write for the joy of it, Cultivate a work lust that imagines its haven like your hands at night dreaming the sun in the sunspot of a breast. You are fasted now, light-headed, dangerous. Take off from here and don't be so earnest, so ready for the sackcloth and the ashes. Let go, let fly, forget. You've listened long enough. Now strike your note. no doubt Loch Derrick will be here in 50 years time. I think Loch Derrick will still be here in 500 years time 
I, I, I believe that the kind of thing that happens here in Loch Derg will, rather than disappear, will become more popular. I think more people are discovering, for example, that it is good to fast. I find I meet more and more people who say that they now fast on one day a week because they find that it's good for their body and it's good mentally, it's good spiritually, therefore. Uh, I find that uh, people are interested in testing themselves in some way or other, in seeing what what it is that's in them, what is of value. I think Loch Derg offers them that opportunity. And I think that Loch Derg will be around because it's so uncommercialized, because it's because it's so different and without being distant from this modern world, it is very different from it.